do ask that you just bless the time in the study of your word as once again we open it up and uh, Lord, we have so much application to make. And Lord, I pray that we would be right now teachable and just our hearts soft before you as we look at, um, at our text here tonight. And just teach us. Teach us by your Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we saw that David sinned with Bathsheba in chapter 11, the sin of adultery. And of course, he also committed murder as he had Uriah, uh, Bathsheba's uh, husband put to death. And um, so we know that Uriah was killed by David as he gave the orders to Joab to put him up front in the lines, retreat from the battle. And so it was David who tried to hide that sin for a number of months until chapter 12, Nathan came along, confronted David with his sin. And as Nathan did, we know that David would confess it. He uh, would say, I have sinned against the Lord. It was Nathan that told David, David, you are forgiven of sin, but there's going to be consequences. You're, you're not going to die, David, but there is going to be violence and there is going to be adversity in your home. And the thing that we need to remember as Christians, we are very grateful, thankful that we have forgiveness of sin. When we sin, as 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 tells us, that we can confess our sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so what a glorious uh, truth that we have in scriptures that we have forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. But here's the thing to remember as a Christian, that even though we have forgiveness of sin, there's still consequences for sin. And in David's circumstances, we're going to see, as we began to last week, as we entered into chapter 13, those consequences coming about in his family, and it's going to affect his family. Violence is coming. We know that adversity is coming into his household. And, of course, we know that the same thing can happen to us when we get involved in sin, that there's sadness and sorrow, and there's adversity that can come into our lives because of the consequences of sin. And so chapter 13, as we saw that there was um, this adversity coming into David's house, it, it came by the fact that David had a daughter who was very beautiful. Her name was Tamar. And Tamar had a brother named Absalom. And Absalom is going to be the focus of our study here tonight. And Tamar and Absalom, they were uh, daughters of uh, and uh, the children of David. He married the daughter of the king of Geshur. And it would be David's eldest son, who was the son of another wife of David. David, of course, taking on multiple wives, Amnon. Uh, he would be born to David and Ahinoham, the Jezreelitess. And it was Amnon, as we saw, who was one that lusted for Tamar. And he came up with this scheme, and he ended up raping her. And when that happened, we saw that David, in verse 21 of chapter 13, he heard of all these things, he was very angry. So we looked at that very carefully last time. And David, he knew that this had happened, that his eldest son, uh, Amnon, had raped his half-sister Tamar, David being angry about it, though he did not do anything about it. He ignored it. And we saw that Tamar would end up going to her brother Absalom's house to live there, to find comfort, to find 
shelter there. And as we began to discuss last week when we ended our study, David was a great administrator. He was the greatest king that Israel ever had. He was a great warrior. Uh, he, he had a heart after God, but there was failings in David's life. And one of those failings, of course, was in that whole area concerning his family. David would indulge his kids but David did not discipline his kids. And we see that David at this time is ignoring the situation. And we're going to see what happens when he continues to ignore this whole circumstance that took place with his family that is going to escalate the, the bitterness, the, 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 um, the events that will continue to escalate to get worse. And I want to remind us once again as parents particularly when we are dealing with our children, that we can't just ignore problems that arise with them or situations that, that develop concerning them. We need to deal with our children's heart. We need to pray for them. We need to talk with them. And we need to deal with those problems that come up. Because as the scripture says in the New Testament, in, in Ephesians chapter 6, that you fathers and mothers, you play a part with that, that you're to bring your children up in the admonition and the training of the Lord, that is, in the discipline of the Lord. And so we are to raise our children in the ways of the Lord. We know that, but also we're told that we're not to provoke our children to wrath. And as I began to discuss last week, we need to remember one way that you can provoke your children to wrath is when you begin to ignore problems that come up, when you begin to sweep them under the rugs, when you, you just think, I don't want to confront my children. I don't want to deal with their hearts. I, I'm hoping this is just kind of go away. And as parents, one of the hardest things that that we are to do is to deal with their children and to do that discipline that God has called us divinely to do and to touch their hearts and to also confront those problems that we need to. And it takes courage and it takes real strength at times to do that. And it's interesting, think about this, because David was one, he wasn't afraid of giant Goliath. He wasn't afraid of the Philistines. He wasn't afraid to go to war against his enemies. But as we continue on here, we're going to see that David, for some reason, was afraid to confront his children. He was afraid to confront Amnon. He was afraid to confront Absalom. And we're going to see this continues to escalate to where it's going to get worse and worse, this situation here. It's going to blow up. It's going to just get um, to where Absalom here is going to be full of anger and bitterness because we saw that he knew that this had happened, that Amnon had done this to his sister. And I find it interesting that it was Tamar that ended up having to stay or she chose to stay over at her brother Absalom's house. She didn't go to her father. And I think that says something as, as we look at this that she felt like her security and her protection and her covering was going to be by her brother, which is good, but you see, it needed to be primarily by David, her father. So here is the situation that has taken place. In verse 23, as we pick up our text of Second Samuel chapter 13, and it came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazar, which is near Ephraim, so Absalom invited all the king's son. So two years have passed now. David has not dealt with this situation. He didn't deal with his eldest son, Amnon. Uh, Amnon probably feels like that he's gotten away with this. Uh, he is one that 
again, as we're going to see, the indication is, is that he's just living life to the fullest. He's just living it up. He's going to go to this festival here that, at the sheep shears. Because you see, in ancient Israel, whenever they had this time of shearing the sheep, it was a festive time. So here is Absalom after two years. He's plotting. He's planning. He feels like, since dad isn't going to do anything about this, that I got to, to do something about it. And he's going to take his vengeance out on his half-brother Amnon. And so here he has this sheep shearing that's going to take place. He invites the king's sons. And Absalom came, verse 24, to the king and said, Kindly note your servant has said, our, our sheep shearers, please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go now, lest we be a burden to you. Then he urged them, but he would not go, and he blessed them. And then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he let Amnon and all the king's son go with him. So Absalom comes up with this plan, and he comes to his father, and he says to his father, Dad, will you come to this sheep shearing that I'm going to have? It's a festive time. It really was a celebration. And Dad says, no, I don't want to be a burden to you, me and my servants, so we're not going to go. And Absalom continues to try to get his dad to go. And I think that in this, that Absalom knew that his dad was going to say no, that Dad didn't have time for him. And as I read this, I want to remind us as parents and as grandparents that we need to be involved with our kids. And one of the things I always encourage all the parents that whenever your kids are involved in different things, that, that you want to show interest in that. You want to encourage them in those things. When they have ball games, schools is starting up, go to their ball games. If they have recitals, go to the recitals. If they're in a play, go to the play. If they are in you know, some kind of academic uh, kind of event, like a science fair or a debate or something like that, you show interest in your children, you go, and especially when they ask. But you see, we can get busy with life. And sometimes as parents, we can say, oh, I don't have time. I, I don't want to do that. But the thing is, we need to do that. We need to make the time. And we need to encourage our children that way. And I think David here, being the king of Israel, he's a busy man. But Absalom knew that dad's not going to go. This is part of the plan. He's very manipulative. He's very crafty, Absalom is, as we're going to see as we continue going through these chapters here. And I think he knew very much that David, he's not interested in what it is that I'm doing. He's been kind of ignoring this whole situation for the last couple of years. So I'm going to ask him, well, can the, the king's sons go? In verse 27, I think that, that it is, you know, or in verse 26, that David is saying, you know, why should Amnon go with you? He's suspecting something. He knows something's kind of up, but he doesn't press it. And again, I want to remind us as parents that I think that when something comes, a check or something, maybe it's the Lord is telling you, you better ask questions of what's going on here, where they're going and what's taking place. And I know that, that I need to do that as a father and, and we all need to do that as parents. Hey, what's going on here? Because oftentimes the Lord will bring that 
to our hearts and to our minds that, hey, you need to ask questions. And here's David going, you know, why should he go with you? And something's up here. But then he dismisses it as Absalom urged him in verse 27. In verse 28, now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, watch now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say strike Amnon, then kill him, do not be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. And the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one got on his mule and fled. And so here they end up killing um, Amnon, Absalom, having him killed. The king's son end up fleeing. They get on their mules, and they flee the scene because they don't know what's going on. They're confused. They're wondering, are we going to be next? In verse 30, it came to pass while they were on the way that news came to David, saying, Absalom has killed all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. So the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the ground, and all his servants stood by with their clothes torn. Then Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, answered and said, Let not my lord suppose they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for only Amnon is dead. For by the command of Absalom this has been determined from the day that he forced his sister Tamar. Now therefore let not my lord the king take this thing to his heart, to think that all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. For some reason word comes back to David that all the king's sons were killed. And David, of course, he's mourning. He tears his clothes. He's on his face on the ground. That was a sign of mourning. The servants tear their clothes. This is terrible news. All of his sons are dead. But it wasn't true. And so his nephew comes to David and says that, listen, uh, you know what? It's not true. Only Amnon is dead. The king's sons are okay. Look, they're, they're coming. Um, they are coming, and only Amnon is dead. So David receives the truth. But I think that this story here illustrates something very important for us to understand, and that is when there are rumors and hearsay and gossip, it can bring a lot of hurt, and it can bring a lot of agony to people's lives. And so as Christians, we are told in God's Word very clearly that we are not to be involved in those things. And we live in a society where we love to gossip. We live in a society where we love to you know, talk about certain things and hearsays, and we can be ones involved in rumors. Hey, did you hear about so-and-so and what's going on here and this and that? And it can bring agony. It can bring hurt to people when we get involved in that. So as Christians, we're to be wise and not to be involved with those kinds of things. The Bible calls gossip and rumors and those kinds of things. He calls it sin is what the Lord does. God's Word is very clear on that. Because it does bring hurt, and it ruins people's reputations, and it causes people to agonize and, and be hurt because of those things. And what I pray as a Christian, that we would be above reproach, and remember the things that we say, it, the Bible has a lot to, to give us instructions concerning our speech, and speaking truth, and ed, being edifying, and encouraging others, and speaking in truth. And if you wonder about something, if you hear something, go to the horse's mouth, ask them. Ask that person, you know, uh, you, you know, about this situation. But don't be one that you're involved in spreading rumors and gossip and don't be involved in, you know, slander and any of those things and don't be involved in hearing it and saying, well, I can't wait till, you know, this juicy news that's going around. I hear more about it. But we would be ones that we would want to base our conversations and what we say on truth and what we know to be true. 
So here is this rumor that brings hurt to David, but it's just a rumor. Only Amnon is dead. In verse 34, then Absalom fled, and the young man who was keeping watch lifted his eyes and looked, and there were many people who were coming from the road on the hillside behind him. And Jonadab said to the king, Look, the king's sons are coming, as your servant said, so it is. So it was as soon as he had finished speaking that the king's sons indeed came, and they lifted their voice and wept. And also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. And Absalom fled, and he went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled, and he went to Geshur and was there three years. In verse 39, and King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. So here is Absalom. He flees. He flees to where, you know, his mother was from. He goes to Geshur, which is in that area of Syria, and he remains there for three years. And David longed for Absalom, but he again continues to ignore the situation. He says, just leave him. I'm not going to talk to him. I'm not going to confront him. I'm not going to go to him. And we know as Christians that the Bible has very specific instructions for you and for me. That if somebody sins or you feel like you've offended somebody, you're to go to that individual and talk to them. And I think that if David would have done that, if he would have confronted this situation that happened in chapter 13 with his daughter and with Amnon, that, that he, if he would have dealt with it justly and with integrity and honesty, honestly, that, that these things wouldn't be coming about. And now, all of a sudden, tragedy has come to his house again because Absalom was vengeful and took matters into his own hands. Absalom did wrong here. But you see, David, he's continuing to ignore the situation, and we're going to see again that it's going to escalate to where it gets even worse. And here is Absalom. He's in, in Geshur. He's there for three years, and David continues to ignore him. And you can imagine what's going on with Absalom. We're going to see very clearly he's going to continue to get more bitter. He's getting more angry at this situation because David is ignoring him. Don't provoke your children to wrath. And the one way to provoke them to wrath is to ignore them. Just as Absalom is being ignored. So Joab, the son of Zeruiah, in chapter 14, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. And Joab sent to, to Koah and brought um, from there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel and do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead and go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. So Joab sees that the king is bothered by this. So he goes and he sends from a woman from Tekoa, and that is near Bethlehem, just a few miles south of Bethlehem. And he says, you go out to the king, you pretend to be mourning, um, make sure that uh, you speak these words. I'm going to give you this story that you are to tell the king. And the story goes as this, when the woman of Tekoa spoke in verse 4 to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, um, O king. And then the king said to her, What troubles you? And she answered, Indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And now your maidservant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field, and there was no one to part them, 
but the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant. And they said, Deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed. And we will destroy the heir also, so they would extinguish my ember that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. And so here's the widow that comes and tells David this story. Now remember, this is the story that Joab told her to say. They're making this story up. And she comes to him and says, My husband is dead. My two sons had a fight, and one kills the other. And the rest of the family wants him turned over so they can put him to death. I have the avenger of death coming after my son. But if he is killed, they also want to kill the heir. And there's going to be no inheritance, no continuing of my dead husband's name. Now, we've discussed that in ancient Israel, inheritance and a continuing of you know, your name is very important in ancient Israel. Genealogy was very important. So I don't want his name to be wiped out from Israel. And so can you help me, king? Here are these, the avengers of death. And realize that back in this time, there was no police force. There, there was none of those things. If you had a case, you had to bring that case to the elders of the nearest city that you're in, and then they would hear the case. Now, in a case of murder or something like this, then it was up to you that you had to try to find that person you know, who was the murderer. And of course, in the Old Testament law, we saw that there were cities of refuge if somebody was killed accidentally, that if you were out working in the field, for example, and you're swinging an axe and you accidentally, you know, killed somebody, you could go to a city of refuge and hide there until your case was heard and then you were safe from the avenger of blood. That is those relatives that would come and avenge the death of their loved one. So oftentimes what happened is people took matters into their own hands. And that's what the avenger of death did. You know, they would come and, and the, avenge their loved one's death. And I got relatives that are going to do this. And, and he's the last heir to my husband's name. Can you help me, king? In verse 8, then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa uh, said, to the king, my lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. So the king said, Whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you any more. And then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God, and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall on the ground. So protect me from the avenger of blood. And David said, I will do that. Your son's going to be okay. He makes a judgment on this, and um, no one's going to go after your son. If they do, they need to come to me, and I will deal with the situation. But your son's going to be okay. In verse 12, she's a very persistent woman here, as she says, Please let your maidservant speak another word to my lord the king. And he said, Say on. So the woman said, Why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty, in that the king does not bring his banished ones home again. For we surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, yet uh, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. In verse 15, Now therefore I have come to speak of this thing to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak 
to the king, it may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, The word of my lord the king will now be comforting, for as the angel of God, so is my lord the king, in discerning good and evil. And may the Lord your God be with you. And so here, David, you've made a judgment concerning my son, but what about your own son? You see, when she came to David, she wasn't really looking for justice. She was looking for mercy. And you've shown mercy to me, but yet you've ignored your own son. And so she says this to David, and it strikes David, and and David is going to respond to her. But I love verse 14. Before we continue on, what she says here, and, and this is where I think that she is wise here as she comes, and she says, We die, yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. You know, in that is a simple statement, really, of the gospel. Because all of us, we're going to die. And we were born into this world with sin, and because of sin, we are going to die physically, but also it brought death to us spiritually. And life is short. It is short. She says, surely you will die, but it's like water spilled on the ground. Life is so fragile, and our lives will come to an end. But God will devise means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. And that's the good news that we have, because God did devise a, a plan so that we wouldn't be banished forever. And it is sending of his son, Jesus Christ. And now we receive mercy. We receive his grace as we come in faith. Jesus Christ dying for our sins as he went to Calvary's cross and shed his blood for you and for me. That's what we've been looking at very carefully over the last couple Sundays. Jesus dying on the cross. And now as he cried out from the cross, it is finished. The price has been paid. The work is done. Redemption is now been um, you're redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and, and salvation is possible reconciliation with the Father oh now you can come boldly into the throne room of grace as Hebrew declares to us with confidence because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me he did come up with the plan and that was that he sent his son for you and for me so that we the banished ones are not expelled from him but that we can have a relationship with him That's the good news that we see as we look at this. And we're so thankful for the cross of Calvary. And that's why we celebrate here tonight. That's why we come and sing and we can have joy in our hearts because we have relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We're forgiven people. And so this strikes David as this woman is speaking to him. And so the king in verse 19 said, In the hand of Joab with you and all of this, David smells a rat. He knows Joab is up to something. And, and so the woman answered and said, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right and or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. For your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. So she comes and she admits that it was Joab that told her to say this. In verse 20, to bring about a change of the affairs of your servant Joab has done this thing. But my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth. And the king said to Joab, all right, I have granted this thing. Go therefore and bring back the young man Absalom. And then Joab fell on the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, and that this king has fulfilled the request 
of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but not, did not see the king's face. So here Joab, he, he seems as he has a lot of concern about this matter. Now, you can think, why was Joab so concerned about it? Why was he so concerned about Absalom being in Geshur and David not seeing him? Why this interest to go into this, you know, plan of his of sending this lady to, to go and, and, you know, give this story to David? And, and now Joab, he, he's happy, falls to the ground, bowed himself, he thanked the king, I'm going to go get your servant. Why is Joab taking such an interest in this matter? I don't know for sure. All I can go to is, is in verse 1 of chapter 14 where it says that he perceived the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. There are those who come along and say, well, it could be at this point that he thinks, Joab, that Absalom's going to be the next king because Amnon, the eldest son, is dead. The second son in line is Chiliad, and we don't hear anything on him. We don't even know if he's even alive at this point. So it seems like that Absalom would be the next in line to be the next king. So maybe he's thinking that he can score points with Absalom and, and get in good with Absalom if he has him come back home and this relationship with his father is reconciled. Uh, I'm not convinced of that because we're going to see as we read on here in the rest of this chapter that it seems like Joab kind of ignores Absalom once he comes back to Jerusalem. Or maybe he's thinking that this is the best for the nation and he's trying to keep a rebellion from happening. But the thing is, we're going to see as we move into the next chapter here that the rebellion is going to happen. So Joab, for some reason, took special interest in that because he saw that David's heart was troubled by all of this. And so he goes and he gets Absalom. But notice again, he brings him to Jerusalem and Absalom comes home. But David says, I don't want to see him. He continues to ignore this situation. He hasn't seen Absalom for three years. He longed for Absalom. He goes ahead and gives the orders, bring Absalom back to Jerusalem, but he refuses to see him once again as he continues in ignoring the situation. There's, I think, nothing that makes things worse when there's a problem and two people won't come together and talk about it. And we as Christians, again, I want to press this point that we are mandated by Scripture that we are to do that. That you're to go to that brother. You're to go with the hope of understanding and forgiveness and restoration. But David refuses to do that. And so here we're going to see that it's going to continue to escalate. In verse 25, now in all of Israel there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his hair of his head, at the end of every year he cut it because it was heavy on him. And when he cut it, the the hair of his head was at 200 shekels according to the king's standard. And so Absalom was born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. So here is what we're told concerning the appearance of Absalom here. The Bible is telling us that he was known for his good looks. Um, This guy was handsome, and he was praised in all of Israel for being handsome. There wasn't a blemish on him. He would have made even the, you know, best-looking guys in Hollywood, you know, he would have showed them up. There was no blemish on him. 
you know, you got to remember when you look at the pictures, you know, of models and the, you know, celebrities and stuff on the magazines, do you realize they fix them all up? They fix them up so they look perfect, no blemish on them. Absalom, he had no blemish. From the sole of his feet to the top of his head. And he had hair, man, it cut his hair. It says that every year he cut his hair 200 shekels. Most scholars believe that was between four to five pounds. It's a lot of hair on your head. That's, that's heavy. So he's extremely proud of his hair. And we're going to see that he is, you know, going to end up being all hung up over his hair, literally, in the next chapter. And you'll know what I mean when we get there. So here's the outward appearance told to us of Absalom. Not only is his outward appearance where he has no blemish, but he's very crafty. He, he is very... Uh, much a manipulator. He is one that knows how to win the hearts of the people. And that's what he's going to begin to do here. It's interesting in verse 27, they has a daughter named Tamar, the same name of his sister. She was a beautiful woman in appearance. In Absalom, verse 28, dwelt two years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. So here it is, that David has not seen Absalom for five years. It's been seven years since the incident happened there in chapter 3. 13 concerning Abnon and Tamar and things continue to get worse David continues to ignore this situation another two years his son in Jerusalem and he doesn't even see him in verse 29 therefore Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king but he would not come to him and when he sent again the second time he would not come so Absalom he wants to see his dad he wants to see the king he says Joab you're my way in Will you come and, and make way for me to be able to see dad? And Joab ignores him once, he ignores, ignores him a second time. So this is the reason that I think that Joab really didn't have that much interest in Absalom. Uh, he's ignoring him at this time. So Absalom, what does he do? He takes things into his own hands once again. In verse 30, so he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered, Joab, look, I sent to you, saying, Come here, so that I may send you the king to say, Why have I come from Geshur? It would have been better for me to be there still. Now therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me me so Joab went to the king and told him and when he had called for Absalom he came to the king and bowed himself on the face to the ground before the king then the king kissed Absalom and so here he burns Absalom you know Absalom burns Joab's field it gets Joab's attention and when we read it in the text sometimes you got to imagine kind of what it is Joab comes to Absalom's house and says you know what are you doing and Absalom answers well you wouldn't pay any attention to me so I need to get your attention you know there was anger there was yelling at each other uh, there was a big you know dispute that took place at Absalom's house this is an ugly scene here he burnt Joab's barley field and took a lot of his income away so Joab is very upset and Absalom is very upset to, to go to this measure to try to get his attention. I want to see dad. So Joab says, listen, king, David, you've got to see your son Absalom. So he does. And they come and the king kissed Absalom and you think that everything would be fine, but it isn't. And you see, here's another thing to remember. That when we are talking with our kids, that we need to really deal with the issues that we need to talk to them about. 
And sometimes it isn't easy. And I just have a feeling that David, you know, just kind of here, you know, kissed his son and it's good to see you and, and continued to ignore the real issue that was going on. Because we're going to see that Absalom's going to continue to have bitterness and anger towards his father to where he's going to try to take the throne away from him. He's going to undermine his father right now. They never got this thing settled. And sometimes we can see others and just kind of, again, we can see them and and hope everything will be okay while we just sweep it under the rug rather than getting down to the issue that is a problem. So that's what David does as they finally meet. But chapter 15, we're going to cover a few verses uh, before we leave tonight our study. But after this happened, that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, verse 4, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. And so it was whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. And in this manner Absalom acted towards all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So here is Absalom. He provides himself with a chariot. He has 50 runners. I mean, he's looking good. He would make the perfect politician. As he has these runners and he's without spot or blemish and he's up there in the chariot and he comes early in the morning and he would come there to the place where judgments would take place in Jerusalem. Now, again, they had the civil laws that were given to them and the smaller cases, they could go to the nearest city where the elders would judge that case. But they could also come to Jerusalem on the more difficult cases or any kind of appeal to the king, and the king had deputies and judges that would hear the case. And it was kind of like, you know, the DMV up here. you, you got to get there early in the morning, or you're going to be there all day. So people would be lined up there early in the morning. They would have to travel a distance to come and hear their case and have the king hear it, or the deputy of the king hear it. And they would be there early in the morning, and Absalom knew this. So what he does is he comes with his 50 runners and and his long hair, and he's looking good in his chariot, and he comes there to that place, to, to the gate. And he comes early, and he begins to talk to the people. And he says, where are you from? Well, we're from so-and-so. What's going on? Well, this is what's taking place. And he would begin to manipulate this situation. He began to undermine David. And he said, oh, if only I was made judge. You got a good case. Then you would really receive justice. Too bad that the king, that he's not down here hearing your case. I am. And the people began to to buy into Absalom's manipulation and, and, and all of this as He's saying, if I were the king, if I was the judge, man, you would see things are different. You'd get justice right away. And he begins to, to steal the hearts of the people of Israel. He did that because he had this exciting, enticing image with the chariots and runners all before him. 
He worked hard as he was there early in the morning. He knew where to position himself. He looked for the troubled people, and he would give them, you know, sympathy, and he would be one that he was crafty because he never attacked David directly. But what he would do is that he would leave that troubled person more troubled. There's nobody here to really hear you. Nobody really cares about you. And if I were in charge, then it would be better. So the people would think only if we had somebody like Absalom. Things would be different, better. You would be happier. I would be happier. But here's the thing that we need to keep in mind. Listen, watch out for the person who says, I'm helping deal with discontent when they are actually promoting discontentment. You and I need to have discernment in that time. When that person at work or that person in the family or that person in the neighborhood or whatever it might be begins to gather people around them and said, oh, if only if I were the boss, if only if I was in charge of this event, if only if I was to make the decisions, if only I was the pastor, then things would be different. Things would be better. And, and, and you're important to me in, in the manipulation. And really, it isn't dealing with discontent. It's, it's promoting discontentment. And we need to be wise in those situations that we don't get caught up in those kinds of things, the undermining in a way that is not pleasing to the Lord. And that's what Absalom's doing. He's crafty. He's smart. He's using his good looks, his position as the king's son to be able to do this, to undermine his father David, and it is wrong, and it's going to bring disaster upon the whole nation here and upon his own life personally as well. And so here he is doing these things in verse 7. It came to pass after 40 years. That should read four years um, in the Septuagint and in even Josephus, the historian, it's, it's four years. It's probably a scribe mistake, a, a tiny mistake that is there. It reads 40 years. Either that or he's 40 years old. But it probably reads, after four years, Absalom is doing this. He's undermining his father. He's going to the gate of the city constantly. Hey, you guys, if I was the king, if I was the leader, things would be different. And so he comes to the king in, in verse 7, Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt in Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. So he's sounding real spiritual here. I have known those who try to undermine ministries, those who try to undermine what God is doing, and they'll try to sound so spiritual while they're trying to do that. And that's what Absalom is doing here. Oh, I'm going to go to Hebron. I'm going to pay a vow that I made to the Lord. I need to go there, Dad. And so, verse 9, the king said to him, Go in peace. So he rose and went to Hebron. Do you realize that this is going to be the last thing that David's going to say to his son? To go in peace. It's the last words of David to Absalom. And so, the king saying that, then Absalom sent spies, verse 10, throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gelonite, David's counselor from his city from Gilo. And while he offered sacrifices, and the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. So 200 come over from Jerusalem. They come innocently, but here is 
you know, Absalom continuing to work them to win their hearts. But there it says in verse 12 that he sent for Ahithophel, which the indication here is that Ahithophel and Absalom had been talking and planning. Ahithophel being David's counselor. Now we talked about him, didn't we, in chapter 11. Ahithophel, he was known for his wise counsel in 2 Samuel chapter 16, the next chapter. We're going to see that his counsel was like the oracles of God. He was a very wise man. He was the trusted advisor and friend to David. David thought very highly of Ahithophel. He was very close to him. We know that from Psalm 55. He's, he's my companion, my acquaintance. Uh, we... we we walk together in the throng of the congregation, in the house of the Lord. They spent time talking, and David, I believe, was actually, I think personally, closer probably to Ahithophel than he was to even Jonathan. Because that's how highly David thought of him. Oh, the sweet counsel that we took together. David loved to talk about the things of God to Ahithophel. But we also know that Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. So not only do you have Absalom that is growing in bitterness and anger and wrath towards his father over these years, but you also have Ahithophel as well. And we're going to see what ends up happening here. And Ahithophel, no doubt, is very bitter. He's been talking with Absalom. I want to get vengeance towards your dad. Let's plan this. You can take over the kingdom. You know, here's the thing, that even Bitterness that you have and anger that you have towards somebody or unforgiveness can cloud even those and then cloud us when we have godly wisdom. Because we're going to see Ahithophel is not going to use godly wisdom because, you see, wisdom is not just knowing what God wants you to do but actually doing it in your life. And that can happen to us. And that's why bitterness and jealousies and, and anger and unforgiveness is so dangerous because it clouds your discernment. It clouds, you know, you making godly decisions in your life because you're just full of vengeance and full of wanting to get back at somebody. And that's what you're determined to do. And that's what we saw in, in Saul's life in 1 Samuel. That's what we're seeing with Absalom and with Ahithophel as well. So we're going to see what happens to them as Absalom is going to try to take the throne from David. But we're going to see that it's going to end in a very tragic way for Ahithophel and for Absalom. Father, we just thank you for this time in your word. And we thank you for these reminders. First of all, how you devised a plan that we, your banished ones, as we were ones that, because of sin, that we are separated from you, that we are now brought to you through Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord. And so, Father, I thank you for the message of the cross. I thank you that, that we can just celebrate salvation knowing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. There's no other name under heaven in which we must be saved. The plan that God had to bring us to yourself was to send your son to die on Calvary's cross. And what I pray, if there's anyone that's here or is going to listen to this message on the radio, that, Lord, that if anyone has, has not come into relationship with the Father, they would know that it comes. The plan of salvation is this that he sent 2,000 years ago, his son, Jesus, the Son of God, 
to die on a cross for you. That you might have salvation, forgiveness of sin, come into true fellowship and relationship with the Father. And you can come to Jesus Christ by asking Him to come into your heart, by admitting that, yes, I am a sinner, and I know that my sin has kept me from you, Lord. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. But Jesus Christ came to bring life. And you can receive that forgiveness of sin and eternal life by surrendering your heart to Him. He's your only hope. So if the Lord's knocking on the door of your heart, open your heart to Him. Ask Jesus into your heart. He will hear you as you sincerely surrender your heart to Him. You pray, Jesus, forgive me of my sins, for I have sinned. And I believe that you died for me on Calvary's cross. And I thank you for that. Forgive me, be my Lord and Savior. Wash me clean. And I thank you that I have a living hope. And I now come into fellowship and relationship with the Father that comes through you, Jesus. I surrender my life to you now. Thank you for hearing my prayer. And for all of us, that as we live in Christ and live the cross, that every day that we would be ones that we would cast all of our cares and concern upon the Lord. And Father, we know that this is a day where it's very difficult to live in and we have problems in lives and challenges and difficulties that come into our lives that we have different relationships that problems can arise. And Lord, I pray for parents that you would help them to minister to their children. And Lord, in dealing with the challenges that come and the problems that arise, and that you would give us the strength and the wisdom to touch their hearts, to Lord, deal with those problems and not just sweep them under the rug or let them go to where it eventually gets worse and it blows up. Lord, give us wisdom and discernment and strength to do that. And Lord, I pray that as parents that you would help us because it's a difficult world in which we live in. So I pray for all the parents and grandparents that are here. You would help us in raising our children in the ways of the Lord. And Father, that you'd help us to discipline them in, in a way that's pleasing to you and will benefit them. And Lord, I also ask that, that you keep us strong and that we would, Lord, look to you and how we raise our children. And Lord, our family life would be centered around you. And Lord, I do pray for all of us that, that we would be ones, that Lord, in every area of our lives, that we would trust in you. That we wouldn't try to be vengeful towards anybody else. Or Lord, that we would let go of, of any bitterness or anger or unforgiveness that we have towards anybody else. Knowing that you've given us very specific instructions to go to a brother or sister but lord if there's a relationship that's so severed that that's not possible that lord that you would help us i know there's different cases and people go through different experiences lord but lord give those who perhaps are just feeling the bitterness of of life and in relationships that lord that you would free them and, and give them answers lord bring comfort to them and Lord, that we would just know how much we're, as we're reminded, that we're forgiven. 
And Lord, I pray that it wouldn't grow in our hearts and take root there. But we would give it to you and be free. Even though it may cause sorrow when we think about it and sadness, but Lord, that we would just be free from the bitterness or the anger or the unforgiveness. Lord, I do pray that you would bless your people and we thank you for going through this text tonight, even though it can be hard to look at. But Lord, that we know that we can learn from these things. Bless your people as we go our way, Lord. Take us home safely tonight. Bless our fellowship that we have. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen.